responsibility to stay informed and to express your concerns. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. Um, and today on the program, um, we've got double the fun. Uh, we've got two writers in the house. Uh, I've got Ron Hansen is here. <laughs> and Jim Shepard is doing some appropriate house dancing music. He's, lif- he's raising the roof. We are in the house. I do believe. Jim Shepard, um, with his book, Like You'd Understand, comma anyway <laughs> and 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 Ron Hansen with Exiles a novel um so welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank thanks, you. Thanks for coming. I should say that the program is being taped. We're coming at you from um, October 29th, two thousand eight. Um, so, so you you both are in town together in Ipsy, right? You're doing a, a gig at EMU. We are. Um, we're reading there tonight. In fact, together, it'll be. A festive occasion. That's right. So maybe some listeners got to catch it. I always feel like we're working in a time machine when we do these I know, exactly. shows and we're talking about There's going to be a group of people going, that would have been great a week ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> these people. I know. We should do it. We should do it all the time. This spot. Well, before we go any further, I'll start with reading your bios. Um, let's see. And Ron, you become in the alphabet first. Okay. So we'll start with Ron Rats. Hansen. <laughs> You'll get your turn, yeah. Shepard. Darn. <laughs> Ron Hansen's novels include Desperados, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Mariette in Ecstasy, and Atticus, a finalist for the National Book Award. He teaches at Santa Clara University in Northern California. All correct. <laughs> so far, so good. Yeah. And it doesn't even begin to approach his achievements, really. <laughs> I know. Well, we, we should we should list that. Do you just want to rattle some of those off? No, we'll get to those okay. as we walk our way through his sexual history. <laughs> <laughs> They'll just naturally They'll unfold. Just unfold yes. okay. I think you have to plow through it, yeah. not walk through oh. it. <laughs> well, good thing it's not live. We can just snip that right out, can't we? <laughs> no, no. We've explained all that. Yeah, right. <laughs> we've got it on carved into tablets exactly. by now. Okay, so, and now moving on to Jim Shepard, who's here in the studio as well. Jim Shepard, very funny, is the author of six novels and two previous collections of stories. He teaches at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. There you go. 
See, Ron got his listed, but I didn't get mine listed. No, I'm Did you? <laughs> I know. I was just like, these two previous collections of short stories names like, of anyway, which Anyway, I'm sure himself. he's written books at some point or another. <laughs> well, there's a whole list. Yeah, you, don't even go into it. It's, it's radio. Project X, Love and Hydrogen, Nosferatu. 2. Um, I like was this. embarrassed. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame him. Well, I don't blame him. But didn't you write this yourself? This this pared down bio, the spare. Yes, I did. Yeah. And you'll notice there's a kind of affecting modesty on my part. It is. It's uh, nice. It's called keeping your light under a bushel. <laughs> under a bushel. Yes. I, I think it, it... Not it, a bushmills. Not a bushmills, no. <laughs> and it works very well because it, it minimizes the amount of money coming into my family. I think, and that's really what I'm trying to do. Well, I noticed that you've pared it down because at other times you talk about your family in your bio mm-hmm. and your dog. I've noticed you've also mentioned your dog. I I try to drag my dog into it in some sort of insulting way whenever I can. Is your dog a beagle? My dog is a beagle, yes. Um, and and um, is tormented routinely as part of my regular, uh, re- you know, sort of daily grind. Because like most writers, when I'm not actually writing, I'm wandering around the house looking for something to do. And in the case of poor... Uh, Dino, the name of the beagle is Dino. Dino. Yeah. Is it? Is it? What's he named for? He's named for Dean Martin. That's what um, I thought. <laughs> and uh, and it sounds a bit like him. And he does sound a little bit like him. He has some of. Um, he certainly has all of Dean's understanding of the science. Um, <laughs> Um, but um, he always knows when writing isn't going well because he'll be like curled up on the sofa and I'll come over to play with him and he'll be like, oh God, I guess now things aren't going so good. This guy again. Me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, he probably figured into the, the book that you wrote with Amy Hempel, Unleashed. Um, his predecessor uh, did actually. Uh, Amy and I put together an anthology of poems by writers' dogs and it was one of those things where, as um, we say in the introduction, it's like the career counselors tell you you should find something you're doing anyway and find a way to make it pay. Uh. And Amy and I would send each other uh, poems in our dog's voices that were designed to sort of humiliate the dogs. And then when we liked some of the poems, we would send them around to other friends who had dogs, and they would send their po- their dog's poems. And so then we started thinking, well, why don't we just collect all of these? So we essentially contacted all the writers we knew who had dogs and said, do you want to write a poem in your dog's voice? And of course, no one said no, essentially. <laughs> and so who are some of the other other people in the collection? Well, we were fortunate to enough that, to get I mean, Ron Hansen involved. I wrote um, a Villanelle. Um, what's Randall your dog? Which, which, but he's long, long dead, but his oh. name was Winslow at the time. And oh. <laughs> he wrote a Villanelle. Oh, that's and wonderful. I have a dog named Maggie now. I don't think she writes. I'll Maggie have to ask her later. <laughs> Maggie's more of a songwriter, I that's think. Right. Really. A crooner. A crooner, yeah. But lyrics, I mean, that's, yeah, that's poetry right yeah. there. If Maggie's got those. Oh. My wife Karen and I um, have a Labrador, um, or, uh, or had a Labrador. He's also now long gone. His name was Birch, and he was 110 pounds. And his poem in its entirety um, ran, you going to eat that? You going to eat that? <laughs> You gonna eat that? And then the final line was, "I'll eat that." <laughs> and that was that was that sort of summarized. It was a haiku, Birch. It? It was a haiku of a sort. Yeah, dog haiku, really. And his and his name was Birch. His name was Birch. He was named after a tree of, because of his intellectual affinities, essentially. <laughs> That's so weird. The other Labradors that I've known, um, well, uh, some of them, they were named Willow and Oakley. Get out and of town. So isn't that a weird? Yeah. All right, this is getting as non-literary as it possibly can. It's true. But Amy Hempel is coming to town, so Excellent. she'll be here um, on campus to read. And are you going to She's not flying. Yeah. 
Pardon? I'll wager she's not flying. How's that, Ron? She's afraid of flying. Oh, okay. So she, she doesn't fly very a train often. or a car. Yeah. She that started flying books, a little bit more it? now. Really? Yeah. Because that's in her, like, yeah. in... Yeah. Her phobias come up a lot in her books. <laughs> well, don't all of our... <laughs> <laughs> if I had one, I suppose it would. <laughs> Ron operates, actually, from a kind of fearlessness. An obsession. Uh, an obsession, yeah. <laughs> Driven by obsession. Driven by obsession. <laughs> we won't get into that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure we will. You guys are each going to be reading something for us. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Very that's soon. True. But not so... the FCC stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we had to, yeah. We had to use the, the magic marker. The or magic the, marker. The Sharpie. But um, and so talking about speaking of collaboration, um, both of you, let's see, you had a collaboration. Yep. You've got to read this. That was mm-hmm. the title of the anthology, Contemporary Writers, um, picking stories that they were in awe of. Is yes. that that's isn't it? that a wonderful idea for an anthology? Yeah. yeah. It was yeah, originally called Spellbound and then the publisher didn't oh. want that title. Because they then, thought it would be too Hitchcock or right. something. And so we were driving along and said, what do we want? this book to be and we want it to be a book about like you hand it to somebody and you've got to read this and then that's where the title Eureka the Eureka moment where it it originated we were standing around um, on a porch in Breadloaf at the Breadloaf Writers Conference and we realized that one of the things we love to do with writers who interested us that we didn't know very well is we we would say and writers do this all the time sort of say who should I be reading uh-huh. And um that old standby. That old standby. And what's great about the, the anthology in my mind is that we didn't tell people what we meant by pick a story. So some people like Sue Miller said, well, obviously they just mean what's your favorite story and they went out and did, you know, a good man is hard to find. And then other people like Charlie Baxter said Friend of the show, Charlie Baxter. Friend of the show said, well, anybody can tell you, you know, I mean, who doesn't know about a good man is hard to find. What I want to do is. Oh, no. In his like opening comments. I hope he took that out. (laughs) But he he said, you know, what you want to do is introduce writers to somebody that otherwise they wouldn't know about. So he picked Lars Gustafsson. um, And there was a really nice range that way. We also asked them. To, um, well, because if someone's us, passionate about someone, like a good man is hard to find, then you, it, and if you like that writer, it would be like this great yeah, insight to is. see what they have it, to say about how it's Mary, working. Our letter to uh, my letter to Mary Gordon was: we, you don't have to write about somebody like uh, James Joyce's *The Dead*. And she took that as a hint that she, we wanted something, so she wrote an introduction to *James Joyce's Joyce the, the Dead*. Yeah, really, which is great because it just come in the public domain, so we didn't have to pay for it. Well, but it was also <laughs> great because we wanted a spread. You know, Ron is Mr. Bottom. Line, <laughs> that'll come across during the program <laughs> but we also wanted a spread for of um stories that everybody should have read the, the dead the good man is hard mm-hmm. to find and just weird stuff uh, stuff that you know so it, so it didn't look like um a lineup of chestnuts but it also wasn't just wholly idiosyncratic right mm-hmm. um and that meant i think that combination meant that it was a hugely popular anthology until um we made the mistake of asking the publisher if they wanted to do yet another um, edition and change some of the stories. And the publisher was like, sure. And then they went back and looked at the rights and they realized that our rights had lapsed on a lot of these stories. So oh. the, so uh, it, it was actually a case where a really successful book just went out of print anyway. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. The publisher was very disappointed. So that would be the tricky part of it, like making these, because it sounds like lots of fun. It's well, something that's organic and a kind of a project. Exactly. It sounds like lots of fun until you start to get into the rights and stuff. And then you go, whose idea was this? Why are we doing this, essentially? Because then you start going, you know, you say to a famous writer, pick a story. The famous writer picks a story. You then go get the rights. And they're like, oh, my God. And then you go back to the famous writer and go, could you pick could another you pick story? Because this is outrageous. Like somebody picked... As I remember Sandra Cisneros, 
and we went and looked at Sundus's nose, and, and it was like, you know, we had to give them our firstborn child or something. Um, and we like our firstborn child. Ron and I especially worked hard on our firstborn <laughs> child. So <laughs> it's not easy for Ron to carry a child to term. <laughs> right. uh, one time, Jim and I went to New York City at the Random House headquarters because we had a lot of Random House and Kadaf authors. And the woman came down, and we every time she set a price, we would offer half. And she would agree and she to would it. Agree to it because there's no the end, skin off said, her This nose. is why I never talked to editors yeah. of anthologies. Right. She we, had just said, "It's look, it's a, like well, let's, let's say she goes, it's a thousand, three thousand dollars." We're like, "We'll give you fifteen hundred. She goes, "All right." Really? Yeah. And we walked out having saved thirty thousand dollars on the cost of the anthology, but that's why our contracts lapsed too, is because we'd already oh. sold too many copies. Because they agreed that okay, you can have this as long as you didn't sell more than five thousand copies. Right. Right. Oh man. That um well what did you guys since you were the ones that were at the helm were you able to were you able to put your stories in as well the ones that you chose yes yeah in fact we set ourselves up as catchers in the rye the idea <laughs> being um, we would wait till the very end and see what the most glaring omissions were ah so we I got chose to a Tolstoy he yeah, chose um, Nabokov. Nabokov and we got oh. to the end and we were like wow nobody picked Tolstoy nobody picked Nabokov I guess our our path is clear essentially we have to do that. Um, and we were, you know, we're flexible enough. There are a lot of authors we would have liked to have done. So it wasn't a big, we weren't, we weren't in suspense about it particularly. Right, right. Well, it sounds like a great project. And when, and well, maybe, maybe since we're talking about it, someone will bring it back in print somehow. I think if people hear that T is behind this whole thing. <laughs> I am behind it. Yeah. I mean, that could start. With two living authors. With two living exactly. authors. But now somebody listening to this is like, yeah, she had a couple anthologists on, I guess. I know. We're going to get to that. Actually, we're, we're going to come right back uh, today on the program. Good point, Jim. Well taken. Um, Ron Hansen with his novel Exiles and Jim Shepard with his latest story collection, Like You'd Understand Anyway. Um, we'll hear some of it when we come back with Living Writers. Reflecting off the mirror 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN today. And uh, Ron Hansen is in the studio with his uh, latest novel, Exiles. Um, it's it's out in hardcover since May. Um, and it'll be out in paper from Picador, <laughs> June 2009. Why is she um, laughing? I know. <laughs> <laughs> paper. It's out in paper. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there are saps out there who are going to buy it. I don't know. <laughs> no, I just thought it's great that I could work. If I could only work more peas into this, I know, that, that would be, be nice. perfect. Yeah. Oh, I think I just did. paperback. <laughs> Published. <laughs> Published, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jim Shepard's book, like you'd understand anyway, um, is, is um, out in paper uh, with vintage since August. So, um, so it's great uh, to... to to see that paper is still going strong <laughs> in the culture. I don't know. All right. Something's well, great. <laughs> something's, something's bound to be great. Something's pretty great. So so we thought we'd, um, before hearing a little bit from both of you gentlemen with your your uh, the books on the table, uh, talk a little bit more about your bios. And I, I think I've got my fun facts to throw in the mix are where you were born. So Ron, Omaha, o- Omaha Nebraska, Nebraska. And then Jim. Uh, you were born in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Bridgeport, Connecticut, yeah, which is really the Omaha of the East Coast. It's the it's, it's first U.S. city to declare formal bankruptcy. Yep, yep, and don't think we're not proud of that. Either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we can fritter away money like you can't believe. We don't have it, but we spend it. Fritter. <laughs> right, fritter. <laughs> and so, and you, you guys, your history together... Um, we're a couple. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, we, well, we, I, I picked you up at the Marriott just right. moments ago. <laughs> Frolicking. Exactly. Now I'm going to be Hold, tormented by these hands. images for years, I think. <laughs> holding hands in the fountains. Yeah. Oh, right. Right. We um, met at the University of Michigan. Ex- that's wonderful. Yes. And I, I came as a member of the Michigan Society of Fellows in 1981. And Jim came from Brown. I came from right out of my MFA program um, and just got a job as a lecturer. And I'm the sort of person that if um, I'm put in an office by myself in a new place, I will sit in my office and go, well, I guess I'm not going to meet anybody. And Ron's the sort of person that if you put him in an office in a new place, he'll go, well, I'm not going to meet anybody staying in here. And he'll go across the hall and knock on a door, which is what he did. He knocked on the door and he came in and he introduced himself. To this, Get to know me. To this Yahoo. <laughs> to this Yahoo. And he had his, something. what was great is he had his paperback, you might want to say that, paperback, um, <laughs> of his first novel, Desperados, which had, which was out in Ballantyne and had a pretty lurid cover. Ooh. And Ooh. he said... Um, uh, I'm Ron Hansen. I'm a novelist. This is my first novel. Have you read it? And I said, no. And he goes, would you like to? And I was like, sure. And uh, he left it with me. And I remember thinking, uh, what am I going to do with this? I mean, you know, or like, I'm going to ride the bus and right. carry this and I'm going to get um, lots of dates. So I That's went home. I, think. I went home. And because I had no life here in, in Ann Arbor, I read it. And uh, I was shocked by how wonderful it was. And he came in and the next day and being Ron marched into my office and said, so what'd you think? Oh, so you expected it to be a one yeah, night I mean, turnover. I mean, expect of everybody. Right. Um, and <laughs> I mean, all this listening audience. And I was like, God, I, I love this. And I, I don't think I was able to quite keep the shock out of my voice about how much I liked it. But, oh, nice. but Ron was gracious enough to, to just let the compliments wash over him. And soon after so that, I we knew were, you would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> soon after that, we were um, alternatively either drinking whiskey together or throwing footballs back and forth. Jim called me up one Friday afternoon and said, how would you like to fling the oblate spheroid around? And I thought, anybody who knows that a football is an oblate spheroid must be pretty good. So we tossed. <laughs> it was we but can they throw? Wait, why am I making that comment? Okay. <laughs> we discovered a mutual affection for the honeymooners and uh, for a lot of films. And, how uh, now, brown cow? Yeah, that's where that came from. And, 
Um, and we also were um, uh, mutual pariahs. I mean, you know, just looking at us, you would know that others would steer clear. And so, um, <laughs> in the in the grand halls of Angel, was it still? It was the English department. It was called still Angel for... Hall then. Yes, yeah. uh, it was made of of uh, wood shavings then. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it was a, a couple of reprobates yeah, exactly. in the, the wood shavings. <laughs> um, and I was teaching film as well at a time when um, you actually, I would actually have to go to some sort of mail center for the U of M and pick up the 35 millimeter canisters as they arrived um, and schlep them all the way to the lecture room and thread them through the projector. And I mean, it was, it was, really the dawn of time when it came to teaching film. So yeah, you were here a long time ago, you guys. <laughs> 81, 84. 81 to 84, yeah. yeah. And then you've kind of, your paths have crossed numerous times since then. Well, we've worked to make them cross since then. I mean, we try to arrange things like, you know, kind of lavish get-togethers like this where we come yes. across the country and are, are feeded. At a, to a college radio station. To a college radio station. Um, because, or to you know, a Marriott the, and Ipsy. This it's really is the high point. Yeah. It really is only college radio stations can, that can afford us at this stage, really, <laughs> that have the money to sort of roll out, you know. Um, Ron has a lot of sort of prima donna kind of requests. There. Like a, the M&M bowl has to be all green M&Ms. You can't have brown. You can't have, you know, that kind of stuff. So. Well, let's. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask why green, but um, let it go. But uh, and so this book, like you'd understand anyway, Jim. You you won the story prize for this last I year. I did, right? um, and I was nominated for the National Book Ron, Award. Ron, were you surprised that he won? <laughs> I mean, I've never heard a good story from him. <laughs> Ron's. He wasn't so much surprised because he never really heard about it. He doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't get out much, Ron. And so you I actually just you told him that for the first book. time. <laughs> what are you doing with your story? prize um bowl it's a big silver bowl and actually when I've it first one. arrived have you? Bowl. Yeah, yeah we i actually um had the dog drink out of it at first wow. and then that seemed um not a good idea disrespectful a little disrespectful <laughs> green m&ms are in now um but when when they i didn't know what you won for the story prize and so when they said you know they announced my name and i went up on stage and they handed me a this bowl and I said into the microphone it's a bowl you win a silver bowl <laughs> and my wife was sitting in the audience she said oh don't make fun of the bowl don't make fun of the bowl <laughs> and, and then I you did and I just withheld sort of going you know I held it up over my head like this but I didn't like you had won with yeah like, ah! <laughs> um, the Stanley Cup but I came really close to making fun of the bowl and at the very last minute some vestigial Ron Hansen inside <laughs> me said, "Have a have a shred of dignity." <laughs> or so your, I, your wife's thought. Yeah, or I could see my wife's face going like, "Don't say." You know, it. making the, making the slashing across the throat, and so I backed off and didn't didn't make fun of it. But it, it's a, it's sweet. I mean, they give you a big silver bowl, and you'd have to do something with it. Right? So I think it's um, I think it's in Emmett's room, my my middle son's room, and he has knickknacks and stuff in it and it's a nice looking bowl yeah. but I, I can't quite bring myself to having it like in a position of honor in the living room or something like that right, you know, right. like, that's, uh, that's the story prize over there <laughs> with, a, with a track light on right right <laughs> And and when you're a National Book Award nominee, as Ron knows, you get a, what looks like a, a, a bronze Olympic medal, essentially, with the ribbon. And there's nothing good you can possibly do with that either. Yes, um, what does become of those? What have you done where with is yours, your, Ron? Where's your nominee? Uh, it's on a table somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, on a, like with a, it's a spotlight? It's underneath Jim your shirt. A, right? Jim went to a cheesy trophy shop and gave me one for Atticus. Oh, yeah. And, that, and I got, that's I still probably displayed award, in yeah. my... Well, if you gave me your own award, that I would display. <laughs> um, I ended up, um, I went to see, <clears throat> Levon Helm runs um, what he calls the Ramble. Levon Helm's the old drummer for the band. 
and he runs what he calls the Ramble in his house in Woodstock, and he just invites musicians in, mm-hmm. and he invited in um, Elvis Costello and Diana Krall and all these wonderful musicians, and they just like jam in their living room, and you pay a hundred dollars to go sit there and watch them for like five hours, and it was it's a wonderful experience, and I went and did that, and they give you what looks like. Um, uh, a pass for like a concert event, mm. so they know you're, what are those, you belong there. Like a there. lanyard, right? A lanyard with the big plastic <laughs> laminated thing, and so I have that hanging over a, a light a fixture, and I have the National Book Award thing hanging with it, and so that seems like a good thing to do with the two of them. That's a, yeah, yeah, the band. But I can't quite arrange it. I mean, Ron, Ron has always had a, a much more emotionally healthy relationship <laughs> to his success than I have. You know, Ron is sort of like, well, why not show people that I've done well? <laughs> And I'm always like, people don't want to look at my awards. And Ron goes, no, but they want to look at mine. <laughs> I have photos of the movies that were made of my books hanging all over you my house. You have a photo of you, you with Brad Pitt with his That's arm right. around you. I and could never in a million years. Well, first of all, I don't want a photo of you and Brad Pitt. But <laughs> I picture could never, me and James if there was a Coburn, photo of yeah. me and Brad Pitt, yeah. it wouldn't be on my wall. Were you, were you tickling Coburn or, or Brad Pitt in were the you, picture? Or? Uh, uh, Coburn, well, this is, is shortly before his death, but he looked really hale and hearty and laughing uh, hugely. Is so. goosing the same as tickling? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. That's, that, I think that actually ramps it up. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a nicely done, Jim. Um, Ron, would you mind reading a, bit, uh, some, a passage from Exiles yeah. for Not us? With that, um, um, Exiles is about the writing of The Wreck of the Deutschland by Gerard Manley Hopkins. So part of it is about Gerard Manley Hopkins, and part of it is about the tragedy at sea. With the nuns. With the nuns. And uh, I'm going to read from late in the night when they're, they foundered on the Kentish Knock, a kind of underground or underwater island, and the Deutschland is being assaulted by these uh, waves. Hour after hour in the Deutschland, there was screaming and yells for help that were so emotionally devastating for some that a stolid businessman named Waldheim took off his life vest and overcoat in the saloon and waded to his first-class cabin. But he was trailed by a suspicious stewardess who found him staring into his lavatory mirror, tears streaming down his face, and with a cocked derringer at his temple. She scolded, We have so many ways to die here now. Why choose the only cowardly one? And he put the derringer down. Another man took off his striped tie and hanged himself from a joist of the pilot house. It was not noticed until his purple cheek mashed up against the aft window glass. A child was lost at sea, and in order to join him in death, his grieving mother sliced the veins of her wrists with penknife. The stewardess who convinced Waldheim not to commit suicide was headed to the pilot house with an urn of coffee when she slipped on the ice of the weather deck and was purchased by a torrent of white seething foam and was never seen again. The ever-vigorous Carl Dietrich Meyer mountaineered his way up the rigging at Captain Brickenstein's first invitation, found a perch on the topmost yardarm of the mainmast and tightly fastened himself to it. Even up as high as he was, the screams and shouts of injury were an agony to him and he imagined these were the sounds of hell, of chaos, helplessness, loss, sorrow, and sudden perpetual loneliness. The ship had become an island of affliction and torture as a snowfield of sea foam washed over the quarterdeck, stealing whatever it could, and Meyer watched between his shroud-steadied shoes as the sea so angrily splashed up against the pilot house that Captain Brickenstein and the crowd in there with him scurried out with the sea's next slackening and scrambled up onto the rigging. 
A squalling child was left behind and was knocked flat by the sea. With the next swell, Carl Dietrich Meyer thought she would be gone. But then a gymnastic seaman repelled down the steep cliff of the rigging, as agile and unafraid as a chimpanzee, and he was just twenty feet above the little girl when his foot caught in a lanyard, and he plummeted head first. The sailor was secured to the yardarm by a legging, and in the sway of the mast he soared out over the sea upside down, and then gravity asked him back again in a glorious swing that ended when his neck struck a taut guy wire and his head was sliced off. The sea took the head as its own, but his body hung by its leg rope through the night, spilling blood and tolling the hours. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was that was an excerpt from Ron Hansen's Exiles. Um, we'll we'll be back. We'll hear um, a piece from Jim Shepard's book, like you'd understand anyway. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back. Welcome back. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, we've got Ron Hansen with his novel, Exiles. We just heard um, an excerpt of it. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. And we've got Jim Shepard, uh, like you'd understand anyway, his latest collection of short stories. Um, One of the story I'm, Prize winner. Story Prize. Yeah, let's not leave that. Bowl. Out. Silver bowl. bowl winner. Silver Bowl winner. Silver Bowl achiever. And Jim, you you were going to say, because uh, we, we, we left right after Ron... Uh, Ron finished reading. Right. We, we left the air for a moment. Um, one of the things I really love about Ron's writing um, is um, what he does with verbs. Um, and there's that one wonderful verb um, in the middle of it that, that both um, sort of beautifully evokes what's actually happening and also evokes the time when you have that woman who slips on the ice and is purchased by the waves. And in that one stroke, you have a whole new way of seeing something and you're brought back in a very quiet way to an earlier way of articulating that helps you understand the whole sensibility. And, and you know, Ron, is, he's always been a, a genius for figurative language. So you have stuff like, you know, the snowfield of the, what, what's the line? The snowfield of the, yeah. Well, you make this stuff up. <laughs> um, you know, a description of... Ron just shrugged then. <laughs> yeah, what the, what, the, what the foam on the deck looks like and it's compared to a snowfield at one point. And, and he, I mean, that he's always been able to do in his sleep. Um, but um, he also works very, very hard at... at um, invigorating his verbs and, and and it has a huge effect on his prose it's really in some ways the key to how his 
his prose operas. It helps to have been born in the 19th century, too. It does. And to, and to be back there emotionally, I think, is also very helpful as well. Uh, Nothing newfangled about me, by golly. <laughs> Ron goes, there were good ideas back then, by God. The, the Whigs had it right as a political party. W-H. W-H, right, exactly. It's radio. We better spell. <laughs> exactly. You had stuff with the hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, Ron, would you agree with, is it, is it interesting to hear Jim kind of talk about, or are you used to it? Do you guys talk to each other about your invigorating verbs? Actually, uh, <laughs> we're the first or second readers of each other's stories. So I get to have the first uh, lousy drafts of his stories and I make them much better. Yeah. <laughs> he turns them right around. Yeah. He goes, invigorate your verbs. Try that for a second. <laughs> No, we, we hear praise from each other all the time because we are close to each other's first readers. I mean, Karen, my wife Karen is my first reader. I assume Bo is your first yeah. reader. Um, so we're really our, each other's second readers. And that means that we get a lot of praise. And, and as writers, we, we want the praise to be articulate. You know, so we don't, we don't say to each other, it really flows. Um, <laughs> you know, we essentially explain to each other why something's working or why something isn't working. So he's heard various versions of this. He's heard various versions of everything I've ever said, um, so nothing is going to really... <laughs> not not very much of a true. Yeah. <laughs> Ron Hansen, lucky man. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and so, and how do you guys go about talking about, or is the way you talk about what's happening in the work by saying what's really working well, so the person can uh, go back to that, or, or how do you talk about things that aren't, well, if that was... I don't want to assume that anything could possibly not be working. Oh, well, our stuff is perfectly. a mess. When we, <laughs> What's interesting is that we have kind of different ethoses about how a story or how fiction should work, and so I'm always urging Jim to make it more accessible, and he always is working to make mine less obvious. Right. Um, Ron is Ron is in some ways a maximalist, and I'm in in some fundamental ways a minimalist. So Ron will often say to me, Jim, nobody knows what an F111 is. And I'll say, they can figure it out. And I will often say to Ron, Ron, we know who won the Second World War. And he'll go, you know, you shouldn't assume these sorts of things. So we really, we're, we're very useful in pushing each other um, in, in various directions that uh, we don't like to go usually. And we know that about each other. So it, that's, that's a, a little extra tool we have. But really what we do is we send each other work and then we walk each other through our responses to it, both, you know, good and bad. Um, I love this part for these reasons. I have no idea what you think you're doing here, you know, that kind of thing. Well, can we hear a, a, one of, a piece of one of your stories from the collection? I don't see why not. It is radio after all. <laughs> Read to us, Jim. Uh, um, this is a story called, the beginning of a story called Courtesy for Beginners, and it's about um, the world's most dismal summer camp. Which was a finalist <laughs> for the Best American Short Stories of this year. Oh, was that one of the ones? I still haven't seen that. Um, it was a finalist, for, apparently, but it wasn't chosen. Thanks, were you, Salman. <laughs> were, you the, were you the editor of that? No, one? Salman Rishdi was. Oh, right. it was. Oh, Ron just looked and saw that I was. With envy. I was looking to see if anything of mine was there. I was not listed. Yeah. I don't know if you can detect, I don't know if you can detect a note of bitterness there or not. <laughs> sometimes the world is a meritocracy to you. It really works out quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is called Courtesy for Beginners. I guess my time's about up, huh? <laughs> um, summer camp. Here's how bad summer camp was. The day I arrived, I opened my camp trunk and changed my shirt and just stood there alone and breathing through my mouth in the four-man platform tent, just me and the canvas smell and the daddy long legs. And then I thought that I was the person who I least wanted to be with, and I stepped out into the cooler air. 
There was nowhere to unpack anything, and even I wasn't so scared that I could hang around in the tent. It was like 104. Sweat ran down the backs of my knees. The black metal stays on the tent robes were too hot to touch. We were in a pine forest. Everything had that baked pine needle smell. My father had just driven away. A squirrel sat up across from me, woozy with the sun. He worked over a nut and then spit it at me. Way off behind him, two kids were sitting on another kid's chest in a clearing. Down the hill to my right, someone was ringing a bell. I headed down the path toward the noise. I think I was affecting a saunter. I sauntered down to the lean-to where a few kids and some counselors were hanging out. A sign on top said, Counselors, lean-to. The counselors were two blonde guys, maybe 17 or 18, the kind of guys who seemed like nice boys to moms. A fat kid who'd already taken off his shirt was bugging them about something. The fat kid had my glasses, which was too bad for the fat kid. They were even fixed with electrical tape on the same side mine were. There was a whine in his voice that I could hear from up where I was, and he kept at it. He stirred the jerk off, I thought, the whole time I was walking down to them. I was talking about me. I was always wanting myself to die whenever I found myself in a stupid situation. When I got to the front of the lean-to, I nodded at whoever caught my eye. Nobody nodded back. I told you I don't know, one of the blonde guys said, watching me fold my arms and stand there. He seemed to be talking to the fat kid. He had both hands on the two-by-four that was the top edge of the lean-to, and he was swinging his body a little, keeping his feet in place. He looked dangerously bored. The fat kid said something else. The blonde guy ignored him. The fat kid said something after that. The blonde guy swung with everything he had and brought his feet up together and caught the fat kid under the chin and up along his face. Fat kid left the ground a foot and a half and landed on his back. The sound was like when I whacked the sheet on our line with my wiffle bat. We all just stared like now we knew what we were in for for the next however many weeks. I felt this rush like I was the blonde guy and the fat kid all at once. One of the other kids bent over and found where the glasses had landed. How are you, the guy who kicked the fat kid asked me. I'm okay, I told him. I didn't know what else to say. Come on, talk to me, tell me what's wrong, my mother said when she got me alone the day before I left. I told her I didn't want to go to camp, and she said, besides the camp. I told her I guessed I felt bad about my brother, and she said, besides your brother. She was asking because she saw what I was like during the day and after school, and she wanted to help. She was worried it would get even worse now that school was over. She said that everyone was worried that everything was taking too much of a toll. My grades had gone downhill. My friends had stopped coming around. Even the Venus flytrap in my room had died. She'd also found my list of the world's deadliest poisons. I was always ranking them and changing the rankings. I had a notebook with that title written inside on the first page that I kept in my desk. I looked in the encyclopedia and in the library and also under our sink. If it had a skull and crossbones on it, I checked it out. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Or should I say Scott Eller? No, you should say Jim. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that should baffle the people out there in Radio Land. No, I'll explain that. No, that was really... Thank you. One of the amazing things about that book is that so many are in first person, and yet all the first yes. person narratives sound different. All the narrators uh, become individuated, real personalities. Yes. Yeah. What Ron means oh, by so many are in first person is all of them are in first person. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like a lot of them. Yeah, it seems like a bunch, of, yeah. a good bundle. Yeah. <laughs> High all, percentage. All authentic. 
all authentic, yes, yeah. because each one was written by that person. Exactly. Yeah. You go. I just go find these people and I say, I need a story from you. Exactly. And it turns out they do it. Another anthology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I mentioned Scott Eller because when I was, I was reading up on you, Jim, it seems like you've just got a whole host of young adult novels, too. No, it's not a host. It's a, like maybe or a four passel? or five, a passel, <laughs> a, a, a tiny bouquet. Um, another writer at Michigan who was friends of both of ours, uh, Bill Holland. Um, asked if I wanted to collaborate with him on something. And um, the only thing I could imagine collaborating, he wanted to actually write fiction. And the only thing I could imagine collaborating on was YA stuff. And so we worked out this kind of so sports young adult, series. young adult stuff. This is actually one of those million dollar moments. Um, you know, everybody has one of those moments where they say, I could have made a gazillion dollars. Um, the reason Bill had brought this up was a, uh, he had run into a very powerful YA agent somewhere at a party or something, and she had said to him, you know, we're dying. The, uh, the YA business is dying for books that boys would like. Can you think of anything? He thought, he saw dollar signs, and so he came to me, and he said, why don't we come up with an idea for a series? And I said, I know the perfect idea, a horror series. And he said, that's too unpleasant. Nobody would like a horror series. How about a sports series? So I said, fine, we'll do a sports series. We did a sports series. We made our $32 or whatever. <laughs> and then... Um, and then Daniel Handler. No, not no. Daniel Handler. What's the guy um, who made the gazillion dollars with the... The horror? It's not Creep Show, but it sounds like that. Um, there's a, there's a, a series of... Uh, the guy's a... What is it? Uh, do you know you? <laughs> Maybe our, our engineer knows our and engineer he's nodding knows, to us. He we're can getting put some dead air here, here now. Yeah. Come on, come <laughs> Lemony Snicket? No, Le not Lemony that's, Snicket. That's Daniel that, Handler. That's that's the, that's the, Lemony oh. Snicket is the ironic guy. But before that, there was a guy who did a series that made eight bazillion dollars. And everybody who's listening to this, all 12 people, will instantly know. <laughs> And we I, don't know, unfortunately. But anyway, my whoever, family and friends number more than twelve, right Jim. There, so rest yeah. assured that more than twelve. <laughs> T's like just, just ex-lovers is more than twelve. All right, <laughs> <Exactly>. so <laughs> getting back to love. Yeah, there you go. Um, what the heck was well? Anyway, well, um, yeah. that that um, turned out to be a, a huge. Um, great if, deal that passed um, us by or if you had written about vampires like with this latest yeah. um, I mean that's what I would have done we would have done various monsters um, they uh, they had a good idea about having different voices and telling the young, young adult novel so it was possible for Bill to write a chapter and Jim to write a chapter so they didn't have to worry about merging their voices or yeah telling. and that was really key because what we did oh, was nice. we came up with the idea of twin brothers who were um, one was as you might guess, kind of a, a, a wiseacre, to, to use the FCC term. <laughs> um, and one was a kind of a straight um, good brother, and Bill was the straight good brother, and I was the wiseacre, essentially. Um, and we actually would actually wrench the narrative in various directions using our... Uh, like there, I remember one point where... Um, I said something like, you know, what an idiot. Uh, you know, uh, we just decided we would never have anything to do with that guy again. And I ended my chapter that way and Bill began his next chapter. But then we reconsidered. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're, look, let's take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today. Jim Shepard, like you'd understand anyway. And Ron Hansen with Exiles. I'm T. Hetzel. And we'll be right back. Up in the morning. Out on the job. And I work like the devil for my pay. I know that a lucky old son has nothing to do with the rule 
with my woman and I tall with my kids I sweat till I'm wrinkled and gray I know that lucky old son has nothing to do but roll around Heaven all day Dear Lord above Don't you see I'm pining I got tears all in my eyes Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers um, on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, today on the program, Jim Shepard and Ron Hansen. And uh, that was a, that was a, just a great... And then it, I should say, Jim Shepard um, has picked all the musical Isn't that a great Ray Charles song? Yeah. It's just a good... Lucky Old Son is just a great, great song. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Jim has quite a record collection. And uh, one time in Ann Arbor, he was going away to Greece for the summer, and he left me probably 200 albums. I knew they would be safe because Ron would only play the Frank Sinatra anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy who named his beagle Dino. Dino, exactly, yeah. Um, I, I came back knowing that the blues albums would remain untouched while I was gone. <laughs> Actually, I dusted off everything to give yeah, it good luck. Ron was like, these are filthy. Doesn't he take care of these things? <laughs> I won't play them, but I'll certainly return them in better shape than I got them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um well well gentlemen i also well i pulled out uh this postcard during the break too because jim you're going to be heading over to um Positano. yeah thanks for saying that yeah it's an <laughs> italian word <laughs> which and uh and it looks like it's really great you want to talk a little bit about this? um this is writers conference sign on to go people with you kill, yeah they can it's uh, i think Do you, you need have a to... sidekick Yes, um, if you want to be um, a, vi- a valet or something Photog- like that. Yeah. Totally. I already drove you guys around yeah, today. Yeah, there you I'm go. Like, um, cabby. Uh, I think the, masseuse is more like it. That's what we want. These two um, <laughs> wonderful young writers, Hannah Tinti, and, who's an editor of One Story Magazine, and, and Danny Shapiro, um, just um, befriended this um, owner of a five-star luxury hotel in Positano. And Positano is one of those cliffside towns on the Amalfi Coast, which is just staggeringly beautiful. Um, And so this guy said, um, in the middle of their stay there, why don't you just do a writer's conference here? We could just fill the five-star hotel with the um, faculty and students. And they were like, yes, we will. (laughs) Why don't we? And they've been doing this now for, I think, uh, three years. And um, I don't have any idea what students pay. I know that um, some of the students go on scholarship. And some pay the full load, and the full load has to be expensive because it's yeah. a five-star hotel and it's this beautiful place. But, you know, they were like, would you want to teach there? And I was like, yes. And they said, well, do you want to check your schedule? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Whatever I'm doing it will be canceled so I can go to <laughs> teach it. I mean, and, and, you know, for the faculty, it's an astonishing deal because I run a workshop from, say, 10 to 1230. And then the rest of the day is my own. And then I'm supposed to come back to... 
La Serena for um, uh, you know one of the great dinners in southern Italy, um, and I'm like, oh, I, I'll be back. I can make it. Um, so it's it's just going to be. And of course, the family gets to go and they get to run around Positano while I'm doing that, and it's just a wonderful deal. Yeah, that's. The, um when you go, do you find that it's changing your work at all? Like, is it suddenly things are because you're connected to Italy in some way or this place? Or? I mean, I think everything, writers are such sponges that everywhere we go, we pick up weird stuff. Um, but I don't, I don't some know. Some weirder than that of some others, than I others, imagine. Right? Um, but, you know, I've spent um, a long stretch in Italy um, near my ancestral home. Um, and I don't know how much I picked up. Uh, from that, I'm sure I picked up all sorts of things that I'm not even aware that I picked up. But I certainly didn't come out of it and go, "Now it's time to write my Italian novel." Right. Yeah. What What is your ancestral home? Like what area? <laughs> what region? Since um, we've got about, Bridgeport, it's about yeah. an hour south of Rome, and it's a little town called Strangolagalli, which translates as "strangle the rooster," essentially. Um, <laughs> That's uh, like Boca Raton. Yeah, right? it's like it's one of those a, great place names. It's one of those great place names, and it's a little hill town and. Um, I don't go back there. I haven't gone back there in a long time because going back there has, um, it just, you get sucked into a round of endless socializing because you can't say to, uh, you know, Nina down the road that you can't stop by for coffee because she knows that you stopped by with Vittorio and <laughs> coffee with these people is six hours. I mean, you don't just walk in and walk out. And if you say you can only stay two hours, it's a, it's a horrifying insult. You right. Know, it's, it's like, it's like in America, if you said, I, well, I can't come visit, but I am going to come over and urinate in your toilet and then I'll leave or something. <laughs> They're like, well, what kind of person does that? So you would Jim literally, Shepherd, ladies and gentlemen, you would be there. You would be there for, I would be in Strangalagali for two and a half weeks and not have left the town yet. Um, and one street, one street, I'm working my way down the street and, and you also feel like a very small person because they say, um, oh, my God, you're my cousin's brother's sister's third cousin's <laughs> brother. And they burst into tears. And you're still not clear on what your relation to these people are. You're like, so. But that's, they're and, feeling and it. They're feeling it <laughs> so intensely. And you're saying, so, oh, my God, so you're Dominic's grandson? And they're like, no, not Dominic. And you're like, oh, so you're Santino's brother. And they're like, no, who's Santino? And you're like, oh, never mind. You know? But meanwhile, they're weeping. Right. And you just feel like, you know, I'm one of those Americans who, for whom these connections mean nothing, essentially. Yeah. You know? yes, I, would, I tried to call him once, and uh, the people who were next door were his relatives, and they didn't speak any English, but uh, he understood by saying Jim Shepard. Jim Shepard. That, that's who I wanted. So he went out and called, Jim, Jim. There we go, Ajim, Ajim. And when I was writing, they could not wrap their mind around, you know, an, an able body, this is the country in Italy, they could, an able-bodied male inside the house during the day. And so they would come by and they would and say to my wife, work. yeah, they would say to my wife, what is he doing? And my, and I, I taught my wife how to say he's writing. He would say, he's scudito. And they would go, he's so he's sick. And she would go, no, he's writing. And he would go, so he's sick. And, they, and then they'd turn to their relatives and say, he's still sick. He's not feeling good. He's not out coming out, you know, that kind of thing. They had it right in uh, Italy, though. You'd see these guys driving the tractor and the wives would be or walking alongside doing all the heavy work. <laughs> Did I mention Ron was in the 19th century again? The, the wives would be carrying like six bales of hay. It was amazing. And some babies and slung some babies. on over his yeah, shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> there was one great moment when the 20th century intruded when um, um, some friends came to visit and one of the, the, the women, one of the women um, wanted to go um, jogging. And so she got in her little jogging outfit and went jogging. And... My relatives came over in a panic, and they were like, we just saw an American running, and some uh, someone's chasing her? I don't know. <laughs> a woman went by in her underwear. 
<laughs> you had to leave the house quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Ron, um, have you been to any of these like these conference things? Like, is that part of the I'm regular writers thing? <laughs> you actually oh, used to be a big conference yeah, guy. Yeah, I used to do a lot of conferences. I just got tired of hearing myself talk about. Is writing. it something you feel like you you have to do at a certain point to be part of like this sort of this larger community, or is it just something you enjoyed because it was a way to see people yeah, at certain uh, times? Or primarily the latter. I it was great way to stay connected with friends and uh, see new writers. I, uh, most of my acquaintance with poetry came from going to writers' conferences yeah. like Breadloaf. And uh, so I, I got a wider sphere of influence in that regard. But then you just get tired of doing it. And you realize that you have just so few precious moments to write that yeah. you don't want to give it up to a summer talking about other people's writing. Right, and I'll even talking about your own. I mean, writer, writers are such geniuses of procrastination that you start to get impatient with yourself and you really do have a relation to these things um, like uh, junior high parties in that you're hurt if you're not asked but once you're asked you go what am I doing here right Um, so it feels like there's a party going on in seventh grade and everybody's there and you're not there and you have to remind yourself that parties in seventh grade aren't much fun anyway and so and and Ron's right I mean you, you a lot of the attraction early on is to find out about other writers um, a lot of the attraction later is, I mean, the way these programs work, except if it's not Positano, is they don't offer you very much money for the amount of time and work you're putting in, but they do offer you the seductive possibility of meeting with writers you wouldn't meet otherwise. So, you know, Michael Collier runs Breadloaf was trying to get me to go there this summer, and he was saying, Charlie Baxter's going to be there, and Amy Hempel's going to, you know, so he knows how to, and, and essentially you get one person, then you say the other person, he's going to be there, and you... And that's um, the. So are you going? No, not this summer. But well, I'll go. Jim to the next did summer. come to the uh, at, uh, University of Nebraska has a writers' conference in the summer, and he came only because we had long talked about going to the College World Series, which is held in Omaha, and oh, it's about, at the same time as this writers' conference. So he endured the conference in order to go to the College World and, Series. And that's, it's the sort of thing that Ron and I would do. You know, we would meet in the middle of the country, but if but if. Uh, Near his birthplace. The instant one of us pulled out, the other would pull out because it's like, why are we going? Why are we spending a week in Omaha, Nebraska, talking about writing? You know, the, the fraud police, that sense you have that, that you shouldn't be standing up in front of people pontificating, that, that um, impulse gets way heightened if you go to more than one writing conference a year because then you really do find yourself repeating some of the same things. And, and you have this little dog and pony show that you're, you're doing for people who don't even know who you are exactly. And it's, it's not the most... It's not the most useful way of spending your time. Really. But you do develop friends even among the students, and they go on to become writers themselves, and they then invite you to uh, give readings at their universities and so forth. It's kind of scratching each other's back situation. It's really nice. Yeah. Is that how you guys ended up at EMU? Who was scratching your back? No, no I'm just I don't kidding. Think so. Jim was actually <laughs> invited, and I just tagged along. <gasps> Wonderful. Yeah. There's a pattern here, isn't it? <laughs> no, actually what happened is EMU does this kind of cool thing that's based on exactly that same impulse, which is um, they say, we'll invite a writer, and one of our inducements is that writer can ask any other writer he wants to ask, she wants to ask. But and how interesting for the conversation then. They yeah, really do have it right. They right. do have it right. Yeah. And they also they understand, I think, the same way the writers' conferences understand that, yeah, we're not offering you that much, and it is time, but you get to see whoever you want to get to see. And that's a big inducement. I mean, I wouldn't be here if Ron hadn't come. And mm-hmm. and obviously they knew that because they're like, well, pick whoever you want. And, you know, at some point, Ron has many times reciprocated and 
and ask some sort of uncomprehending entity to sort of take me on for some reason. You know? <laughs> they're like, all right, so you want Sam Shepard at this thing? Is that right? <laughs> Alan Shepard, the astronaut, <laughs> right. is he coming? You know, <laughs> no, don't don't be modest, Jim. Because I saw that there's a there's a, a clip. Fame hasn't changed Jim Shepard on YouTube. It runs a, a minute and six seconds. And as you know, YouTube is always <laughs> utterly accurate. Anything you see on YouTube is completely accurate. <laughs> so at, at one point, in fact, when I was being interviewed, somebody said, "So, what is it like dealing with fame?" And I said, "Take this simple test. Go outside right now." And tell the first 10 people you run into that you have Jim Shepard inside and watch their faces. <laughs> that's fame. <laughs> um, that's fame, boy. Watch all 10 of them go, and your point would be what exactly? Who are we talking about? Um, but writers. Writers know. I, writers know you. Right, you know, right, uh, You've got a lot bowl. of writers know both of us. But, but Oh, of course. Yes. But that I, goes without saying. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that, in fact. <laughs> I was just trying to encourage you. Ron Carlson over here is quite well known <laughs> <Right>. as well. <laughs> Yeah, aren't you based out of Florida? Yeah, really. Um, there was a second baseman, Ron Hanson. Ron Hanson, yes. Chicago White Sox, yeah. right? Um, oh. Also couldn't hit. Um, <laughs> but anyway... Um, uh, there, the, uh, Phoebe told me you'd try to be sort of self-deprecating. I don't try. I, I, it really works. <laughs> it comes easy. It comes easy, Naturally. Yeah. Um, as my father said uh, about someone else, dark rooms are good for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the dark room of the writer? No, I don't know. No, you need one light. But the great code for me for years, what, what people introducing me would say by way of uh, explaining why everybody in the audience had never heard of me, what people would uh, introducing me would say is, Jim Shepard's a real writer's writer. And that what they yeah. meant was, so no one a... else on earth has heard of this person. So, so <laughs> I've always thought, I've always been fooled, like thinking that that would probably be the highest compliment then. It's not a, I mean, I didn't take it as an insult by any means, but I understood you were like, what they were trying to do. You used some Italian right? gestures. To I mean, I understood, <laughs> you know, it's like that, that somebody's um, offering you a blind date and you go, well, what's this person like? And they go, he's very smart. I met a Swedish publisher once and he was asking me who uh, he should be reading. And oh, I started okay, naming all these people. And then he said suspiciously, are these writers, writers? Mm. And... I realized what he, he was what looking for is the kinds of books people actually wanted to read rather than the kinds I wanted to read. Oh, great. <laughs> see, you see what Ron's saying about my <laughs> Every so often, Ron just becomes a, a sort of muscular populist. And he's sort of like, Gosh darn it, I don't know what I like, but I know it's not intellectual. Okay? An oracle. An oracle, yeah. As Ma would put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much for oh, being on Living Writers. Thank you for having thank you, T. This has been just a great hour. Um, has it seemed like many hours? Has it seemed like coffee in Italy, Jim? <laughs> Minutes passed. No, it seemed like just last week we sat there. Yeah. Just last week we started this conversation exactly. when engineer Hugh Stimson was getting our levels on the mic. Thanks, thanks, Hugh. And can I say Hugh has done a perfect job, a flawless job. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Really, again, gorgeous again. I mean, people are going to be listening to this going, it's such banality, but I could hear every word. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even over the car radio. Exactly. <laughs> and so Thanks very much, Ron Hansen. Thank you for letting me take along. Oh, that's so wonderful. And, and your novel, Exiles, um, 
My wonderful novel, Exiles. Wonderful yeah. novel, Exiles. And, you, and you're actually the, the Gerald Manley Hopkins seat. That's your seat where you that's, teach right now, uh, too. My so chair. This lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to get the handle of academia one day, right on my way no, out. I think probably. T was actually talking about your rear end. <laughs> she was talking about where you were sitting. And Jim Shepard. She's like, that is your seat, isn't it? <laughs> it spreads out. <laughs> Jim Shepard, like you'd understand anyway. I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Let's drink, man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>